You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We've been going through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, uh, a sermon series called Living Hope. Uh, Jesus is our living hope. And um, it's been good. And over the last couple of months, we've been talking a lot about suffering and trials. And we're going to continue that. Woo! Uh, this is actually Peter's like, it's kind of, he kind of had this essay going on, on suffering, right? And, and what it means and why it happens and, and all that kind of stuff. And this is kind of his conclusion. It's his summary on that, on this subject. So, uh, yeah, let's open our hearts and, and just receive the word this morning and, uh, God will change us. First Peter four twelve to 19 is where we're going to be reading from today. So first Peter four, 12 to 19, it'll be up on the screen as well. Because our PowerPoint team is awesome. Thank you, Tina. All right, from verse 12. Beloved, talking to the Christians, calls them beloved. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is, the t- for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that we can be here this morning, that we can be gathered together under the banner of Jesus' name, Lord God, that we can... Come into your presence, Lord God, to learn from your word. And I pray that as we go through your word, that you would open our hearts to receive. Receive it, even, even though it is a more difficult topic this morning, Lord God. But, that, but, but I pray that as we receive it, Lord, you would change us. You would help us to see you in a, in a new and, and better way, Lord God. And, and um, yeah, that you would just move in us, Lord God, that you would mold us, make us more into your likeness, Lord, so that we can continue our mission on this earth to advance your kingdom, to proclaim the name of Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me ask you this. If, you, if you've gone to the doctor because you had, you know, some issues and then you had some tests done and then they discover uh, without your knowledge, you know, that you actually have a potentially... Uh, you know, life-threatening disease or something like that. What what'll be better for you in the long run? A doctor that tells it to you straight, so that you have a better chance to to get better, or you have uh, you know proper expectations of what comes next, or a doctor that that tells you that lies to you just so that you feel better. Right? What's what's better? Of course, it's going to be the doctor that tells you the truth. Right? No matter how hard it is to hear, it's the doctor that tells you the truth. And my point is that having realistic and truthful information, again, no matter how hard it is to hear, 
will result in realistic expectations. And realistic expectations not only keep us being frustrated and and consistently caught off guard, but will also enable us to prepare and react appropriately. And this is one of the things that I, that I really appreciate about this passage in particular. The Apostle Peter is blunt here, but he's very truthful, right? He doesn't mince words or tickle the ears of his readers with fluffy excuses and half-truths to make them feel good because he knows it'll do them no good, right? So I appreciate that he conveys to them clearly here the truth, the truth on the subject of suffering and trials, and why does he do that? Because it's what they need. Like us, they, need, they needed realistic expectations uh, as to what it means to live as Christians so that they don't get caught off guard, so that they don't waver in their faith as a result. So verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Right? This isn't strange, he's saying. Don't be surprised when these trials come to test you. But again, why would they be surprised? Why are, why are they so thrown off by what's happening to them? Well, probably because, because they didn't expect it at all. Timothy Keller writes, Our greatest frustrations are often rooted in misplaced expectations. This reminds me of a time a couple years ago, my wife and I, we were looking for a new vehicle, or a new vehicle to us, a used vehicle, um, and we came upon what seemed like a very well-priced car, it was, seemed like a good deal to us, but because we wanted to have realistic expectations, right, about that model of car, we made sure to look up both good and bad reviews, and on one website in particular, one car website in particular, um, an owner, or not, not an owner, sorry, a review of that type of car uh, was incredibly bad. And so, you know, I wanted to you know, have good balance, so I clicked on that review. And this is what the review said. A lady wrote this about this type of car. I drove two hours to go test drive this car, and when I got there, it didn't have a sunroof. I expected it to have a sunroof. Do not buy this car! Exclamation marks. Of course, that reaction is, that review is ridiculous, right? But let's be honest, isn't that often what we do? We project our self-made expectations onto something, and then we judge that something based not on what it actually is, but on what we want it to be. This is also like when we go see a movie, and we're expecting maybe it to be a non-stop action movie or something, and then it ends up being, you know, a slow, introspective film. And then we leave it, and and, and we hated it, and we're like, oh man, that movie sucked, I was falling asleep to the whole thing. And, And we hate it, not because the movie actually sucked, but because we end up judging the movie based on what we wanted it to be, not on what it actually is. And this is what we often do to God, too. And this is how we often, what we often do to our life as Christians as well. We have a tendency to project on God what we want him to be like, and even how we expect him to, to work and act in our lives, right? And we, we create this God of my expectations in our minds, and the God of my expectations is usually our, a projection of our selfish interests and motives, if we're honest. And then... When things happen in our lives that don't line up with the way we expect God to work in our lives, then all of a sudden we have this crisis of faith. 
Like, what's going on? Things aren't working out the way we expect. Someone has to be blamed. And so what do we do? Well, we might blame ourselves. We might think, oh, you know, if, if, if God isn't working the way I, way I expected, then maybe, maybe it's a problem with my faith. Maybe, maybe um, I'm being punished for my sin. Or maybe because it's not, I'm not believing hard enough or I'm not praying hard enough. Or else we, or else we tend to blame God. We're like, God, you're not being who you promised to be. And we question his character and we question his faithfulness. Or sometimes we even question his existence. Right? And so what we're doing is by creating our own ideas and expectations of God in our mind, what we're doing is imprisoning our own faith within the confines of our false expectations. As long as God does what I expect, I'll follow him and believe in him. But if God doesn't act the way I expect, then I can't believe in him or follow him. That's what we're doing, right? So if we believe that God would never put us through trials, what happens when they come? The ironic thing, though, is that, that we, never, we never question God's character when we're surprised by something good, right? Something good happens we didn't see coming. We never question God. We're like, that's, that's not what I expected. What are you doing, God, right? We're like, yeah. Right? But we do often question God when we're surprised by some unexpected discomfort or pain in our lives. That's when the crisis of faith usually comes into play. From the context of our passage, I think it's safe to assume and ascertain. I like saying ascertain. Ascertain. Everyone say it. Ascertain. I don't know why you did that. You didn't have to. <laughs> but it's fun, isn't it? So I think we can ascertain... I sound like a southern preacher or something. We can ascertain that the Christians, Christians that Peter's writing to, they had this problem, right? They, it seems that they didn't understand nor expect that suffering or trials might be part of the equation when it came to following Jesus. And it's causing them to have a crisis of faith. And they're like, what's going on? Maybe they were under the impression that life with Jesus would be easy, a walk in the park, which Jesus never says. Not until he restores all things, anyways. So again, Peter's intention here is to free them from their misguided expectations that are keeping them from trusting and keeping them from, from living and rejoicing in God. And again, he's doing this by giving them the plain and honest truth. Right? He's giving it to them straight and he's saying, no, our Christian life does not have a sunroof. Right? Stop being surprised about that. Stop being surprised about that. The truth is that as we follow Christ, that yes, our lives will be full of joy and peace and purpose and freedom and power and victory and blessing and all that good stuff, right? But yes, we'll also face trials for his name. Second Timothy 3.12 agrees when it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's almost like a promise. And again, he's telling them this not to discourage them, but completely for the opposite reasons, so that with the right expectations, they won't be discouraged. They won't be caught off guard when trials come. 
And Jesus actually did the same thing, right, for, for Peter and his disciples many times. I'll read you two of them, Matthew 10, 22. He warns them, right, he tells them what to expect. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then in John 16:33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right? Jesus is telling them the truth. He's telling them what they can expect so they're not thrown off guard. And as his disciples figured out very quickly, very quickly, Jesus wasn't kidding when he said the world would hate them on account of his name. And we could argue that nothing in, in regard has, has changed, right? Even today, as Christians, Christians are one of the most persecuted people groups in the world. Not just religions in the world, but people groups in the world. So if we don't think Christianity and suffering, especially suffering for righteousness' sake, if we don't think those ever go, in hand, go hand in hand, then we need to change our expectations or we're going to be in for a surprise. We're always going to be shocked. We're always going to be questioning. We're always going to be thrown off. Of course, why we go through trials is another story, one I'm not going to really talk about today, because we've already been fleshing that out for the last couple of months, right? And, and there are many reasons to test our faith, to sanctify us, to humble us, to give us opportunity to prove our faith and witness Jesus' name to the world and to draw us closer to the presence of God. There's a whole bunch of reasons why we might suffer, and it depends on the circumstance. It depends on what God's doing, right? The list goes on. But for more details on that, you know, I encourage you maybe to check out the podcast if you missed, the, if you missed some sermons or, or just read First Peter uh, 1 to 4. Because, again, I'm not going to re-preach those sermons or we'll be here forever. But anyways, again, the, the, the first and most important thing that we have to recognize and grasp isn't the why anyways. We're always, we always get stuck on the why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? I can't move forward unless I know why, right? The truth is that sometimes we'll actually never get to know why. But what we do know for sure, every time is that because Jesus has overcome, that because God is faithful, there isn't a single trial in this world that can defeat us. But the point is that there are trials. We will face them. And if we can understand this, not just resign to the, not just resign to the fact, be like, okay, fine, there's going to be trials, whatever. But if we actually embrace this truth, that trials aren't a strange thing in our calling as Christians, then we'll be able to persevere through them. Then we'll be able to react to them accordingly. Just like how, you know, if I'm driving to, to church and I expect to, to hit a bunch of red lights on the way, right, then, then I'll react accordingly. I'll make sure that I, I leave my house a little bit early so I get there on time and I won't be annoyed every time I hit a red light. But if I refuse to accept that and think that I'm special for some reason and that I'm going to hit all the green lights, right? Or if I leave late hoping that I'm going to hit all the green lights, then I'm going to be continually surprised and incredibly frustrated every time I hit a red light. Right? We've all been there. Come on. I've been like, oh, come on. Change your expectations when you're driving. You won't have road rage. But in the same way, then, if we change our mindset to expect trials to come in our Christian life, 
that we won't be thrown off or frustrated by them. Instead, we'll be prepared for them. And if so, then the reactions that, that, that we'll actually have in the midst of trials, according to Peter, won't be surprise, won't be shame, won't be fear, it won't be dismay. But rather, our reaction in the midst of trials will be hopeful, rejoicing in Jesus' name and trusting God. And you're like, what? How can I rejoice in the midst of trials? Well, we're going to talk about that. But before we do, a perfect example of this is pretty much the whole book of Acts. You remember when we went through Acts? Um, no? Nobody does. All right. I'm pretty sure some of you were here. So maybe I should change my expectations of whether you're listening or not. Um, just kidding. The whole book of Acts, right, where we see the apostles... And the the early Christians, they they were able to endure so much suffering, right? So many trials, imprisonments, beatings, uh, seeing their friends get killed for for Jesus' name, mockery, abuse, all this kind of stuff over and over and over again. And, and, And the amazing thing is that never once during these trials, not once did they give in to the fear of man or question God or question their faith or ask God to even change their circumstances, They didn't ask God to change their circumstances. Instead, every time they faced conflict or persecution, they trusted God and they rejoiced in Jesus' name. Why? How were they able to do that? Because they had a proper theology and understanding of suffering. In other words, they expected it. It didn't surprise them. They even welcomed it if it was necessary. Because they trusted God. Right? Because they knew that he does and can use all of our circumstances for his purpose and glory. And they trusted that that was happening in every one of their circumstances, good or bad. But just think of this. If they had been told instead, you know, if, if Jesus had said, you know, to, to, to make sure that they would follow him. If Jesus was like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, if you follow me, life's going to be great. And God will never let you go through trials. If that's what Jesus had said, then we can only guess that their faith would have been would have been wrecked and crushed right at the beginning, right after the first beating. They'd be like, "Don't worry, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm going to stop." Right? Or and if not, then then certainly, well, well, uh, as they're watching their buddy Stephen get stoned to death, you know, they'd be like, "What's happening? I didn't sign up for this." And they would have been out of there. Christianity would have failed. We wouldn't be having church right now. But Jesus prepared them with the truth so they knew what to expect. He told them straight up that in the world there will be tribulation. But also to fear not because he's overcome the world. Therefore, with a correct understanding and expectation of trials, then Peter says that this is how we should react when they come. And I have four, four points here. So when trials come, number one, as Christians, we should react with rejoicing. First Peter four thirteen says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want to note here that Peter's not telling us to enjoy our suffering. He's not we're not masochists, right? We're not supposed to enjoy the pain. Jesus didn't enjoy his suffering. The psalmists, when they're writing about it, they're not enjoying their suffering. Paul didn't enjoy his suffering. He made that very clear. 
but rather we rejoice in what the suffering means, what it accomplishes, and because of who it glorifies. That's why we rejoice. And as Christians, Peter's saying that our suffering isn't evidence of a lack of faith or, or even justifiable reason to question God, but quite the opposite. It's actually evidence of Christ working in us. He's saying that the more like Jesus we become, the more the world will treat us like him. Forget that. The more like Jesus we become, then the more the world will treat us like it treated Jesus. That's only natural, which means that if we're being treated like Jesus, if we're going through trials and facing temptations and being persecuted, we should actually be filled with rejoicing because, first of all, it's hard evidence and assurance for us that he's truly living in us, that he's truly being exemplified in us. That's what Paul means when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.10 that as Christians, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And this also means that we can rejoice even more because if we're sharing in his sufferings now, we'll certainly share in his glory later. We can rejoice in that. And, and in this regard, then, C.S. Lewis famously writes, you've probably heard this, he, he writes, the real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. leave that one there number two as christians when we're when we're going through trials this is also how we should react we, we, we should feel blessed we should feel blessed first peter four fourteen says if you are insulted for the name of christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you and this is also following along the same lines of the previous point. But it's also echoing Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount as well, right? In Matthew five ten to 11, when he says, do you guys remember going through the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, okay. <sighs> Man, I'll change my expectations back. Okay, it's echoing Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five ten eleven 11, when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? And I think this is important for us because, it, because it's easy to start thinking in the midst of trials that God has it out for us or that we must not be important or that we must not be worthy or we must not be on good terms with God if he's allowing us to go through all these hard times. But this is an important reminder for us that, that these negative thoughts that we might have like that, they aren't true. In fact, we can be assured that if, that if we're being persecuted or facing trials for the name of Jesus, we're actually blessed. We're actually blessed. From a worldly perspective, this doesn't make any sense, right? Because the world translates blessing as, as being like financial prosperity, prosperity or ownership of goods and property or having lots of family and friends. But Peter and Jesus both remind us here of what being blessed really and truly means. It means to belong to the kingdom of God. It means to know and be in the presence of God. Or as Peter writes, we're blessed... Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. That's what it means to be blessed. It's not riches or comfort or worldly success. It's to know God and be filled with his spirit through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's blessing. I 
And as we face persecution, we're facing trials, we're not only assured of our blessing in Christ then, but it's also our hope and strength in the midst of it too, right? The presence of God is with us in the midst of trials. And, and facing trials actually, I think, forces us to lean on God and be reminded that he's with us. Right? If we're in a situation where all we can do is rely on him, then, then all of a sudden we become closer to him and, and, and understand and know him in a greater way as he comforts and strengthens us through it. All right, so we'll be filled with rejoicing. We'll, we'll, we'll be blessed. And number three, as we go through trials, we'll be unashamed. First Peter four fifteen to 17 it says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I think it's tempting to, to feel ashamed or embarrassed when we're going through something difficult, right? We're going through something, we tend to hide it because we're, we're ashamed or we're embarrassed. Uh, but Peter's saying we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel, of our salvation, first of all. And we don't need to be ashamed of living it out. And we don't need to be ashamed when we face trials because of it. However, if our suffering is a result of sinful actions even if they're done in the name of God, then that will bring shame on us. So he's saying, don't do those things, because they will bring shame on us in both the eyes of the world and under the judgment of God. I think you know, Westboro Baptists, terrorists, and crusaders should all take note here, right? They're like those who think that their hateful and violent actions are for God, and then they think that their suffering as a result of those actions are, are something to boast in. But it's not. It only brings them shame. There's no blessing in suffering that results from those actions. There can be forgiveness. But without repentance, there's no blessing. There's only shame. But in contrast to that, as Christians, if we're living out the gospel, if we're, if we're living for Jesus and loving one another and glorifying God in our lives, then we have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. So even when the world tries to shame us or mock us or or hurt us or whatever, we can be confident in our faith. And in the same vein, neither do we need to be ashamed then in being honest and open with each other about our trials and asking each other for support. I thought I would forget the prayer team, but I did. That prayer team is over there ready to pray for you and give you support. I'm not the end of my sermon yet, but I'm close. I think often, we, you know, we're sitting in our chairs and we're like, man, I really need prayer, but I'm too ashamed to go get prayer. No shame. There is no shame in Christ Jesus. All right, my last point. When we're going through trials, how we should react, we should react by trusting in God. Number four, trusting in God. First Peter 4.19 it says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And here we come back to the foundation, right? Do we trust God to be God? 
if we don't, it'll be incredibly difficult to deal with or persevere through trials, right? Don't get me wrong, our, expe- our expectation with God should always be that God is going to move and work in us and that he'll hear our cries and that he'll answer our prayers and that he'll bring purpose to everything that we go through. But in the same vein, that doesn't mean that we always get to choose when or how he does it. In fact, I think that's why we need trials sometimes. Because it's always in the midst of trials when we're reminded that God doesn't always work the way that we expect or the way that we want him to. And that's actually a freeing truth. A freeing truth that we have to receive. Because if we get that, then we can just let God be God. And as the song says that we sang earlier, just follow him alone. Just follow him alone. Surrender to his will. He's the one who's perfect anyways, right? He knows what's best. He knows what we need. He knows how and desires to turn all things for good. So can we trust him to do that? And if we can, if we can put our our trust solely on our faithful creator alone, on just who he is, then we can also let go of the false God of my expectations that we've created in our minds as well. And then our faith won't hinge on what we think should happen, but rather on who God is. And these two words that Peter uses to describe God, faithful and creator, these are incredibly important on that subject. He says faithful, meaning that God will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, right? He's always true to his promises. And he's the creator, meaning he's created all things. He's a sovereign ruler over all things. He's in control. He knows all. And he'll work all things out for the good of those who love him. He desires to restore his creation. And we're part of that restoration. Therefore, we can just simply trust him. Because we know him. And we know that he's our faithful creator. Psalms of Lament are great examples of this. You guys remember going through the Psalms? Yeah, right on. <laughs> I, don't know, I keep bringing up past sermon series here. The Psalms, the Psalms of Lament are great examples of, of this, just, just trusting in God, even when we don't understand, because they often start out by proclaiming to God their confusion, right? They're like, God, why is this happening to us? How long, O oh Lord, will this be happening to us? You know, and, and, and they don't understand their plight, right? Which is fine. And we can do that too. We can come to God and we can ask him those things. Like, God, why is this happening to us? How long, O oh Lord, will we have to be in this, in this valley? When do we get to go on top of the mountain, right? We can ask God those things. God can take it. He wants to hear from us. But then the amazing thing about these Psalms of Lament like they start off with being like, oh, God, what's going on? I don't understand. I don't get it. But then, they, but then they continue and they switch gears. And all of a sudden they start proclaiming God's character, his faithfulness, his goodness, his justness, his righteousness, his promises. Because they know that even while they don't understand their trials and purposes, what they do know is that God is God. He's their hope. He's their peace beyond understanding. Their faith isn't in knowing why or how or when, but simply in knowing God. 
And if we can live with that perspective as well in our lives, with our souls entrusted to God, then I guarantee you that our trials will have no chance of surprising us and no chance of defeating us. Instead, we'll overcome every time in the presence and strength of God. And our cry in the midst of trials will echo that of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, when he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So if any of you this morning are going through, through suffering or if you're going through trials right now, know that nothing strange is happening to you. You're not being punished. Your faith isn't too weak. You're not praying wrong. You haven't been forsaken. And even though you might feel like it, you will not be destroyed. Because God is with you. Because Jesus' grace is covering you and his spirit is strengthening you. So entrust your soul to him. His presence, his joy, his grace is our strength. And of course, in all of this, In all of this, we find our perfect example in Jesus Christ, who completely, completely entrusted his soul to God, even to the point of death on the cross. Right before he died, remember Jesus proclaimed to God, nevertheless, not my will, not my will, but yours. And then right before he gave his last, last breath on the cross, he cried out to God, unto you, God, the Father, I commit my spirit. So again, if we're called to be like Jesus, first of all, it should come as no surprise to us that trials and suffering in his name will be a part of it. But secondly, in order to persevere, just like Jesus as well, we need to entrust our souls to God and to his will. But of course, not only is Jesus our example in this regard, but he's also the reason that we can even have hope, that he's also the reason we can even trust in God at all. Right? Because again, his suffering, unlike any of ours, truly defeated the power of sin and death, so that through faith in his name, we can be set free from our sin and we can be reconciled with God so that we can be God's people, so that we can receive and know his blessing, so that we can walk in the strength of his presence and in his joy, so that we can have hope. Jesus did that for us at the cross. He took on our shame so that we can be shameless. He defeated our sin so that we could be made righteous. He defeated our death and rose from the grave so that we can live victoriously and eternally. He overcame the ultimate suffering so that we can overcome as well. As Timothy Keller writes, Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. 
There will be trials. But fear not. Jesus has overcome the world. So to conclude this, we're going we're gonna to turn backwards in our Bibles to 1 Peter 2 and read from verses 23 to 25, which will remind us again that Jesus is both our perfect example and our Redeemer. And after we read this passage, I'll pray and then we'll receive communion. 1 Peter 2, 23 to 25. Let's open our hearts and receive this word with thankfulness. When, he, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls.